0: Welcome to the first episode of Season 8 of the Bagley-Wright Lecture Series on Poetry Podcast. I'm Ellen Welker, Coordinator for the series. Season 8 is comprised of lectures written and delivered by Rachel Zucker during her tenure as a Bagley-Wright lecturer. Rachel Zucker's lectures ask questions about obedience, wrongness, and decorum. Like her poetry, the lectures are born from a long lineage of female writers and artists who ask, what now? what next? And am I allowed to do this? To break that? Rachel considers the history of confessional poetry, the ethical consequences of representing real people in art, and the other great medium that has influenced her work, photography, exploring how it taught her to look for, but also question, truth and permission in art. Today we'll hear The Poetics of Wrongness and Unapologia, given November 14th 2016, in partnership with Seattle Arts and Lectures. A quick note about this lecture. Just prior to beginning, Zucker gives a nod to the timing of writing this talk, and I want to clarify that she is speaking about having written it 16 months prior to the election of Donald Trump to the presidency, and to the fact that she is now giving this talk six days after his election. And now, here's Rachel Zucker.
1: I want to say one more thing before I start, which is that these lectures were written about this one in particular was the first, well, you'll hear, but um, this one was written about 16 months ago. So it's important to keep that in mind when you're listening um, to it. Uh, I decided not to rewrite it right now um, for several reasons. First of all, I think it's still relevant or relevant in a different way. Uh, And also, I am not ready to rewrite it. I don't exactly know how to change it or how to think about it. Um, I'll talk a little bit about that at the very end. The one thing I will say is that I use the word wrongness quite a lot and the word wrong has recently been used in a somewhat nefarious way, uh, which is not the way in which I am using it. The Poetics of Wrongness I'm writing this lecture in the middle of a particular night in my particular life. This is relevant. Three years ago, I was asked to write these lectures and it seemed impossible. I'd never given lectures. I imagined that giving a lecture would require me to tell other people what I think, what I know. And that's not really my style. Maybe giving a lecture required me to tell people what they should think, which is really not my style. So what is my style, you might wonder. I'm getting to that. Stay with me. Stay in the present, this moment, for a moment. I am at this particular time in my particular life, the mother of three sons, 16, 14, and eight. This is relevant. What you need to know about this experience is that I am always wrong. I have learned from my 14-year-old that I am always not listening, even when I think I am listening. I am not helping when I am trying to help. I don't get it even when I am trying to understand. My body is wrong. My presence is wrong. The only thing more wrong is my absence. When I am present, it is embarrassing. When I am absent, it is wounding. Weren't you ever embarrassed by your parents, he asks, when he doesn't want me to meet him after the movie he's going to with his friends? Yes, I say. I was embarrassed by my mother every moment of every day and night when I was your age. I do not say. (laughs) But... It is news to me, unpleasant news, that I am now that mother, that embarrassing mother, although the fact that this is news is probably proof that I wasn't listening, that I don't get it, that everything about me is wrong. My 16-year-old doesn't find me personally embarrassing. From him, I discover that I am rather universally flawed, mistaken, and existentially irredeemable. My wrongness is part of the human condition. I am just one not very interesting specimen of general disappointment. With surprising patience, a raised eyebrow, and frequent deep sighing, he explains the many ways in which my ideas about gender, race, mathematics, science, economics, politics, history, psychology, and countless other topics are outdated, erroneous, and sometimes reprehensible. My just-turned-eight-year-old vaulted into his top from his toddler phase, in which everything everyone said or did was indisputably wrong, if it conflicted with what he thought and wanted, directly into his Woody Allen phase, in which he daily confronts me with questions like, can you tell me one thing that matters after the world ends? See, nothing matters, right? Or... If everyone dies, then why does being a good person while you're alive matter if eventually you're going to die and everyone you ever might help will also die? (laughs) There are no right answers to these questions, and this makes me both wrong and profoundly disappointing. Also, I am specifically wrong about everything having to do with soccer, football, music, the appropriate volume of music, the purpose of school, that there is a purpose, whether so-and-so is a nice person or not, what is funny, what is not funny, what is too rough or dangerous, and the matter of playing ball in the apartment. In other words, everything important. Well, you might be thinking being a parent is like that, but it's not just my kids. This is the summer, 18 years into my marriage, that everything I say hurts my husband and everything he says hurts me. We misunderstand each other. Our words come out wrong or are taken wrong. Our tone is wrong, even if the words don't wound. And when we stop talking, we descend into a terrifying hopelessness. Stay with me. This is relevant. Two days ago, it was gently revealed to me that the three lectures I'd spent seven months researching and writing are too long, about too many things, simultaneously unfounded and overly informational, too personal and too impersonal, basically failures. Perhaps with, w- with work, says my editor, these drafts could become essays, but not lectures. So, to summarize, my math is wrong, my logic is wrong, my presence is wrong, my absence is wrong, my gender is wrong, insofar as I come from a mode of thinking in which I believe that gender is a real thing, rather than a fluid social construct infinitely complicated and slippery. Being male would make me more wrong, but being female is also wrong, and conflating gender with race or sexual preference is definitely wrong. My heterosexuality and whiteness also make me wrong, always, all the time, in the sense that they confer unto me privileges at great cost to others, so that any rightness I have in the sense of power or agency is wrongly mine and part of what makes me wrong in the world and certainly part of what makes the world so very, very wrong. At 43, I am too young and too old. Old people look at me wistfully, teenagers with disgust, and children with distrust. Also, the whole world hates Americans, even if they want to be one. Clearly, I am in the Hillary Clinton stage of my life. Everything about me makes someone extremely angry. Who does she think she is? Who do I think I am? And what does this have to do with poetry? In this climate of wrongness, it is difficult to say anything. This isn't new. This is just more apparent to me than ever before. The volume of wrongness is turned up so high, it's impossible to ignore and difficult to shout over. To say anything, even to say, I'm wrong, is wrong. White people should listen. To be silent or meek and or apologetic is wrong. Women should be strong and assertive. And speaking of this climate, I am one of everyone who is irreparably destroying the environment. I am more wrong than my children can even imagine. So what woke me up in the middle of this night was the realization that all this wrongness is excruciating and is somehow exactly right and exactly what I need to talk about. These last seven months, writing about photography, confessional poetry, and the ethical considerations of writing about real people, I was trying to build a case for my thinking and convince you that my ideas were right and interesting and worth your time. In this way, I'd abandoned what made me a poet and the very nature of my poetics. I first started writing and still write poetry because the world and its people and ideas are wrong insane, immoral, disappointing, and unimaginably terrible. I write because I feel wrong, sad, crazy, disappointed, disappointing, and unimaginably terrible. I write to expose wrongness and to confess wrongness and with a sense that doing so is futile at best and more likely part of wrongness and compounds wrongness. I write against. Mine is a poetics of opposition and provocation that I never outgrew. Against wrongness, out of wrongness, with wrongness. Here's my current definition of a poet. I am wrong, and you are wrong, and I'm willing to say it, therefore I am a poet. A poet is one who feels wrong in a wrong world and is willing to speak even when doing so proves her own wrongness, ugliness, brokenness, complicity. This is not the same as saying that I write poetry to feel better or to be forgiven or that the goal of poetry is to write wrongs. Perhaps some people feel better when they write poetry. Perhaps some poems make the world less wrong. What I'm trying to explain, though, is that the athleticism of poetry is the poet's ability to stay in and with wrongness, of being willing to be disliked for being too smart and too stupid, too direct and incomprehensible, elitist and the lowest of the low, and all for what? For the privilege of pointing out that everything in the world is wrong. Wrongness is intrinsic to poetry, which asserts with its most defining formal device, the line break, that the margins of prose are wrong, or with its attention to diction, that the ways in which we've come to understand and use words is wrong. Maybe you think I'm wrong in the way I'm using the word wrong? Fine. I embrace it. I've never written to please you, even if I liked it when you were pleased. I write to talk back sometimes to myself, not to tell you what I think, but to figure out what I think, which is always a process of proving myself and others wrong. It is the job of poems to undermine, to refute, retort, re-see, disrupt, to tell you nicely or aggressively that you are wrong, that the world is fucked up, and that all our modes of understanding and expression are suspect, and that there is nothing and no one above reproach or scrutiny. Poets speak even when it is excruciating, even when no one is listening, often when the poet would be better off staying silent. That's what a poem is, a breaking of silence, a form that makes and then breaks silence over and over. Poetry is the language of pain and grief and hurt and love, and most people in our country hate it, but often need it and sometimes find solace and pleasure in it. I have learned from being a daughter and a mother that finding your parent wrong or being told how wrong you are is a complicated act of attachment, separation, individuation, and love. A parasitic sort of love, perhaps, but love, in that it is a way of paying attention, of giving a shit. The alternative to being wrong is being ignored. So here are some assertions about poetry. Offered in the mode of opposition, without apology, with complete certainty that you, audience, along with my sons, my friends, my students, the culture, the subculture, the past, the future, strangers and intimates, both living and dead, are sure to consider what follows wrong. Enjoy being in good company. Enjoy the brief pleasure of feeling that I am more wrong than you are. Believe me. You are also wrong. Here are the six anti of the poetics of wrongness. One, poetry should be beautiful. John Keats is wrong. <laughs> or the Grecian urn is wrong when it says, Beauty is truth, truth, beauty, that is all ye know on earth and all ye need to know. No. <laughs> First of all, to the extent that I even understand what beauty is, I distrust it and reject it as a quality poetry should pursue or attempt to embody. Beauty is not an inherent quality. It is rather the manipulation of a thing, a bettering and idealizing of the ordinary and the real. By this logic, then, beauty is not truth at all, but closer to anti-truths. My definition of beauty may be a historical. My beauty, a quality primarily invoked to make me buy something I don't need or believe something that isn't true, an industry sold primarily to women to make them make themselves different than they would naturally look, might not be Keats's beauty, just as I'm pretty sure my idea of truth was not, is not the same as his was. Perhaps Keats or the urn was referring to a beauty akin to the Greek notion of Perfection a just right proportion that already exists that waits to be identified rather than made in which the circle might be the perfect shape or painting the perfect art. It's this kind of thinking that underlines Samuel Coleridge's famous delineation of prose and poetry. I wish our clever young poets would remember my homely definitions of prose and poetry, that is, prose equals words in their best order Poetry, the best words in the best order. Best, perfect, beautiful. I have just as much trouble with perfection or bestness as I do with beauty. Perfection and beauty imply flawlessness and flawlessness is an untruth. Perhaps that's why the poem To Dorothy by Marvin Bell moves me. To Dorothy. You are not beautiful, exactly. You are beautiful, inexactly. You let a weed grow by the mulberry and a mulberry grow by the house. So close in the personal quiet of a windy night, it brushes the wall and sweeps away the day till we sleep. A child said it and it seemed true. Things that are lost are all equal, but it isn't true if i lost you the air wouldn't move nor the tree grow someone would pull the weed my flower the quiet wouldn't be yours if i lost you i'd have to ask the grass to let me sleep the poetics of wrongness rejects flawlessness Even the perfect metaphor breaks down in this poem. The poetics of wrongness is only interested in perfection as a manifestation of the Greek notion of teleos or completeness, because completeness contains everything, including the wrongness of things, the flaws, the weeds, the inexact beauty of Dorothy and the poet's desire to write his love for Dorothy, which is a necessary and necessarily failed inexact endeavor. Even if we replace beauty with a notion of perfection or completeness that includes flaws, I still have a problem with Keats's construction. The relationship between telios and truth is not a simple synonymous is. The relationship between beauty and truth is wildly complicated, complex, impossible to define. For this reason, the poetics of wrongness likes to fester in this space, the filled with error space of the relationship between truth and beauty. When I was a graduate student at the University of Iowa, a famous painter poet came to deliver a lecture. I remember him showing paintings of the crucifixion of Jesus and saying that all art is beautiful. I raised my hand and I asked, what if you wanted to make art that wasn't beautiful? This famous poet-painter explained that one could make art of ugly, difficult content, but for the art to succeed, it would transcend ugliness and become beautiful. Oh, teacher, I say you are wrong. I fight back. I reject. I, too, love the made and ache with appreciation at the well-made, but The Poetics of Wrongness rejects anything that suggests that poetry is a pursuit by which we take the ordinary and put makeup on it, make it better, make it best. Even if it were possible, I am not aiming for alchemy. The notion that art is the rendering of the ordinary into the transcendent or extraordinary is wrong." I espouse instead the pursuit of truth, which includes wrongness and what isness, with an awareness that the pursuit of truth is inherently flawed and doomed to failure. Two, poetry should be slant. Speaking of truth, here's another famous poet I'd like to contradict. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant, Emily Dickinson wrote, and she was wrong. Actually, the people who interpreted her directive to mean that poets should intentionally try to make the truth more complicated than it is, they are wrong. I prefer to read Dickinson's short poem as a wittier, quieter, but no less powerful version of Jack Nicholson in A Few Good Men, shouting, You can't handle the truth. (laughs) Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies, too bright for our infirm delight. The truth's superb surprise, as lightning to the children eased with explanation kind. The truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. Dickinson's not saying don't tell all the truth. She's not even saying don't tell all the truth at once. She's saying that the truth, unmediated and given directly, will make men blind. I read Dickinson's use of the word success as containing a heavy dose of proto-irony. Somehow, though, in the line, tell all the truth, but tell it slant, the word slant has been taken to mean that it is the poet's job to dole out truth in small doses or show the world in flashes or dimly illuminated because telling a slant truth is kinder, less blinding, or maybe just more interesting. This kind of thinking has been used to bolster a poetics of coyness and indirection that often slips into glibness, abstraction, and meaninglessness. It's hard enough to know if there is such a thing as truth. Don't waste your time trying to make it less clear, or sit there in the dark waiting for lightning to make things momentarily visible. Be as clear as you can possibly be, always. Blind me. I dare you. The Poetics of Wrongness responds to slantness in Whitman's voice and with his words. Now I wash the gum from your eyes. You must habit yourself to the dazzle of the light and of every moment of your life. 3. A poem should be short. Wrong. A poem should be as long as it needs to be. The poems I love often brush up against the rules of form, then run roughshod over those rules, then turn around and spit in the face of those rules. It's not that a short poem is necessarily impossible, but I reject absolutely the notion that what makes a poem a poem is that it contains language that is best, C number one, or a thing of beauty made with language, C number one, or difficult, tricky, altered truth for the sake of inventiveness or kindness, C number two, or that what distinguishes poetry from other forms of language is brevity, concision, not an extra word in sight." Here is a tiny lovely poem by W.S. Merwin, which I have now lost. There we go. Separation. Your absence has gone through me like thread through a needle. Everything I do is stitched with its color. Here is another short poem, this one by Margaret Atwood, less sweet but also powerful. You fit into me. You fit into me like a hook into an eye, a fish hook, an open eye. (laughs) And perhaps my favorite short poem, Poetry, by Marianne Moore. Poetry. I, too, dislike it. Reading it, however, with a perfect contempt for it, one discovers in it, after all, a place for the genuine. The poetics of wrongness can accept these poems, which have a remarkable ability to surprise and confuse and contradict in a small space. Moore's contempt isn't perfect. It has a fault in which the appeal of poetry slips through. And here she has made this neat little space for the genuine in her poem, in part by contradicting herself and the implied world and their dislike for poetry of the first line. But shortness as a goal? That I reject. I don't support Occam's razor or the law of parsimony. Poems are not problems to be solved with the fewest possible words. Length as a standard of measure for poetry is irrelevant. But if it matters at all, I would say that it is more difficult for short poems to fulfill a poetics of wrongness. See how well behaved these poems are that I just read you? How easily I can insert them into this lecture? How easily you can make that poetry sigh and move on? (laughs) They are portable, easily memorizable, they are digestible, and often feel pre-digested. And these are the good ones. Many short poems read to me as self-satisfied products of a mind that is condescending to me. The poet has chewed up the world and regurgitated it into my open beak. Get away from me, lyric poet of beauty and perfectness with your it won't hurt a bit IV through which you intend to painlessly insert the essence of something into my bloodstream. Give me instead food with all its fiber, a whole disgusting moving worm and a pile of pebbles. The poetics of wrongness prefers real food even if it makes me sick, even if I have to chew and chew and chew. The Poetics of Wrongness rejects a poetry that wants to be unobtrusive or invisible in its form. The Poetics of Wrongness doesn't want a chiseled jewel or a small purse of emotions recollected in tranquility. The Poetics of Wrongness want the kind of poetry that Sylvia Plath said, at its best, can do you a lot of harm. Of course, it can harm. The blood jet is poetry. There is no stopping it, wrote Plath. I want Bernadette Mayer's unwieldy, book-length, 150-page poem, Midwinter Day, that she supposedly it is impossible, wrote all in one day, that travels from dreams to consciousness and back, that includes the voices of her children, her town, history, sex, what she eats for lunch, gossip, lines in Shakespearean meter, prose, and common lists." The history of every historical thing, including God, but not including all men and women individually, is a violent mess like this ice. But for the spaces even hunchbacked history has allowed in between the famous and loud for something that's defined as what does please us, which is perhaps the story of an intimate family though you won't believe or will be unable to love it, driven to research love's limits in the present solitude as if each man or woman in the world was the only one person with everything I've mentioned separate in him or she didn't represent history at all, though he or she had stories to tell and was just sitting kind of crazily before an open window in midwinter. How else can she begin to describe accurately the incoherence of the mind, of life, being a woman, being alive? This poem is impossible and feels nearly unstoppable, and she does it successfully by including her awareness of the inherent failure of the project. From dreams I made sentences, then what I've seen today, then past the past of afternoons of stories like memory, to seeing a plain introduction of modes of love and reason, then to end, I guess, with love, a method to this winter season. Instead of the Fabergé egg of a short lyric, I prefer the aesthetics of intractability and exhaustive exhaustedness, the physicality and ruptured rapture, the unapologetic plain spokenness of James Schuyler's long poems, for example, that are too long to be poems, but are poems. His lines are too long for the page, too long to scan, too long to function as standalone lines, but they are poetry. His tally of physical complaints, his observations about Garbage trucks and air conditioners are anti-poetic and embraced and lauded by the poetics of wrongness. Or, I want the book-length tape, the book-length poem tape for the turn of the year by A. R. Ammons, in which he typed and later did not edit a poem that begins and ends at a length determined by a two and a quarter inch w- wide roll of adding machine paper that would end up being 200 pages long. Ammons loves and hates the roll of paper, adores and despises the project. The poem is so long that his back suffers. The project is like a long marriage and provides him ample opportunity to be wrong, to change his mind, find himself over and over again. It is epic and anti-epic. Odysseus is a man trying to get home. Ammons is a man who almost never leaves home. He must continue the poem until the roll runs out. He is Penelope at her loom but never unweaving, and it is the moments that Ammons grows exasperated, exhausted, and bored that he comes upon exquisite language-making. Thank goodness he did not edit the poem down to the crucial plot points or the greatest collection of best lines. It is the discursive, rambling journey of this poem and its many mistakes that is its glory. What do you get when you mix the pursuits of brevity and beauty? Advertising. The motto, the jingle, the political slogan. A pitch that should take no longer than a ride in an elevator. The poetics of wrongness prefers the stairs. Prefers a half-finished crumbling stairs to nowhere. The poetics of wrongness can't fit in an elevator, wouldn't know what button to press, doesn't know where it's going, suffers from a fear of elevators, and has forgotten its keys and wallet. The poetics of wrongness wants poems that are expansive, inclusive, contradictory, self-conscious, ashamed, and irreverent. It's hard to be those things in 100 words or less. What... You might ask, is the advantage of this ongoingness, this going on and onness? I don't have time for all this meandering, you might say. I find long windedness inconsiderate and annoying. Well, first of all, the poetics of wrongness prefers poems that some people worship and other people detest to poems that everyone likes, so your dislike does not worry me. Second, one note does not a music make. Third, The Poetics of Wrongness values process over product, and longer poems are almost always more honest about their status as made things than short poems are. I am not saying that longer is always better. The Poetics of Wrongness is not interested in who can eat the most hot dogs without throwing up, or who can hold her breath underwater for the longest time. The Poetics of Wrongness likes a good rant or jeremiad, but disdains the filibuster. It is not length for length's sake that I appreciate. Let's not hold longness up as the new beauty. A bad poem that goes on for a long time is surely worse than if it were quickly over. <laughs> it's, it's not length that makes something good. But there is something about the presence of time in a poem that often pleases the poetics of wrongness and something about the sleight of hand, refined, sublimed, edited nature of short poems that often makes the poetics of wrongness cringe. The very long or book-length poems I've mentioned take time and are about time, and in the time that it takes to write these poems, the poet punches a time card in the time clock of the poem and begins to become real to the reader and to herself in a different way. There is space by create, created by time. Can you see my son rolling his eyes at my misuse of physics? There is space created by time for the poet to inhabit, and for the reader, too. When one sees a painting by Jackson Pollock, one notices color and composition, of course, but the thrill of these paintings is the way in which the viewer sees a record of Pollock's body in motion, moving through time and space as he splattered or through paint. All made works are records of an artist's time, but some are more visible in the recording of this time or in the preoccupation with time. Some art goes to great lengths to pretend it emerged fully formed, like Athena from the leg of Zeus. The Poetics of Wrongness is not interested in art made by the gods or by God and gives no gold star for the illusion of effortlessness. You say it is boring to watch a person sit in a chair hour after hour, day after day, breathing in and out and in and out, taking breaks to eat and shit and make love and listen to the weather. You say this is not what art should be about or what art is for. The poetics of wrongness cares not for an absent God artist we can't see or hear, but wants the living miracle of a real person in a real place at a real time artist. The Poetics of Wrongness says that art is these moments of repetition and recurrence and realness, and that in the time it takes to read such a long poem, in the experiential recognition of how long it took to write such a poem, the poet becomes real. With frustration and boredom and anger, with familiarity, adoration, and gratitude, the writer and reader get to spend time together. The poem, violating the laws of time and space, is their meeting place, the place where they become visible to one another and begin to have a relationship that is both imaginary and real, full of faults and failure and desire. It is like sex and it is what all art, short or long, aspires to. Four, poetry should be timeless. Speaking of time, the poetics of wrongness has a problem with timelessness as a virtue. A journalist once said to me, Journalism is important to a large number of people for a very short period of time, whereas poetry is important to very few people for a potentially very long period of time. Okay, maybe, but this does not necessarily lead to the widely held idea that a good poem should be timeless. I've already said that being full of time, visibly, audibly, palpably full of time, can be an asset. And I know that timeless is not meant to imply without time. Most poems have some relationship to narrative and narrativity and cannot exist without time. But The Poetics of Wrongness rejects timelessness and lastingness as an attribute and suggests timeliness as an alternative. The Poetics of Wrongness wants a poetry that is conscious of time, time timeful, and that is is of a particular time, time timely, and that is relevant, timely. Some poems will last and continue to be relevant, but The Poetics of Wrongness wants a poem that is hard to capture and hard to hold. The Poetics of Wrongness wants a poem that will not last forever because it is fresh, alive, unstable, potentially, hopefully useful at a now moment because the poem is on its deathbed. The Poetics of Wrongness is not afraid of hospice. Everything alive dies. Everything fresh expires. The Poetics of Wrongness wants poems with a shelf-life, made of living ingredients. The Poetics of Wrongness would like artists to rethink the idea that the purpose of making art is to make something that will outlive and outlast our minor mortal lives. Rethink the goal of making something that will endure. Rethink the virtue of timelessness. timelessness. Do you want to write a poem that will outlive you? That will last forever? Really? Like plastic? (laughs) Toxic waste? Five, poetry should be universal. One of the great long poems of all time is Walt Whitman's Song of Myself. The poetics of wrongness embraces Whitman and his barbaric yawp, his multitudes, his, do I contradict myself? Very well then, I contradict myself. The relationality of the poem as it reaches out to the reader, its willingness to imagine its own demise, its insistence, its long-windedness. The Poetics of Wrongness loves Whitman's inclusiveness, his energy, his corporality, even his unbounded ego and passion. But The Poetics of Wrongness rejects the way Whitman's love of everything has been used to espouse universality as a necessary quality in poems. Here are the first three lines of Song of Myself. I celebrate myself and sing myself and what I assume you shall assume for every atom belonging to me as good belongs to you. Oh, the poetics of wrongness does wildly love this poem. But to say that Whitman's open-arms poetics, his democratic attention, makes him a universal everyman, writing for and to a universal everyman, is a misunderstanding of Whitman, just as needless indirection is a misunderstanding of Dickinson. The poetics of wrongness is deeply suspicious of universality. Let me stay instead with the specific, the particular, the peculiar, the personal, even if it means that I am accused of narcissism. It is just fine to look at myself if I am looking with attention and with scrutiny, and often it is not myself I gaze at in the still pool, but rather you, the other, an other, and the world with all its wrongness. Even if your atoms and mine are remarkably similar, even if we are all made up of what everything in the cosmos is made up of, let me not assume I know you, or worse, that I am you. Poetry is a mirror which makes beautiful that which is distorted, wrote Percy Bishy Shelley. The poetics of wrongness would like to try to describe the distorted and the distortion without making it beautiful. Pain is filtered in a poem so that it becomes finally in the end pleasure, wrote Mark Strand. The poetics of wrongness would like a pain that stays pain. Not because this is a poetics of sadomasochism, although the poetics of wrongness has no problem with sadomasochism, but because it is a po- poetics of what isness, not what would be niceness. The poetics of wrongness rails against the way in which universalism is often used as a way of excluding certain subject matters or tones or bodies from poetry. The way encouraging poets to write about common experiences that everyone often has is this, that everyone has often has the opposite effect of leading to a poetry that is certainly that is only about certain often male, often white, often heterosexual, often normative experiences that, according to straight white men, are universal. The Poetics of Wrongness prefers instead to write with the parts of our brains and hearts and souls and emotions that are broken and disrupted, to write out of our fetishes and aphasias, the way Chuck Close, who is face-blind, has spent a lifetime making portraits. The poetics of wrongness suggest that it is in the specific, honest portrayal of our most peculiar, obscene, esoteric qualities that one will provoke empathy and identification. Here's Philip Roth, a writer full of wrongness in American Pastoral. You fight your superficiality, your shallowness, so as to try to come at people without unreal expectations, without an overload of bias or hope or arrogance, as equals, man to man, as we used to say, and yet you never fail to get them wrong. You get them wrong before you meet them, while you're anticipating meeting them, you get them wrong while you're with them, and then you go home and tell somebody else about the meeting and you get them wrong again. Since the same generally goes for them, as with you, the whole thing is really a dazzling illusion empty of all perception, an astonishing farce of misperception. And yet, what are we to do about this terribly significant business of other people, which gets bled of the significance we think it has and takes on instead a significance that is ludicrous, so ill-equipped are we to envision one another's interior workings and invisible aims. Is everyone to go off and lock the door and sit secluded like the lonely writers do in a soundproof self cell, summoning people out of words and then proposing that these word people are closer to the real thing than the real people that we mangle every day with our ignorance? The fact remains that getting people right is not what living is all about anyway. It's about getting them wrong that is living. Getting them wrong and wrong and wrong. And then, on careful reconsideration, getting them wrong again. That's how we know we're alive. We're wrong. Yes. I say, yes to that. The Poetics of Wrongness knows that summoning people out of words and mangling real people with words is always an act of getting them wrong. Our word people are no more or less wrong than real people. And as writers, we should try to be at least as alive and wrong in our writing as we are in our real lives. Even if we are able to rescue universality from its highly problematic history, its tendency to mean majority or mainstream, when it says common, even if we were able to appreciate the good-hearted social utopianism that motivates liberal notions of universality, I still reject it. The Poetics of Wrongness rejects the notion that poetry should have a restorative effect on the world and the poetics of wrongness rejects the idea that presenting an idealized utopian view of the world will have a restorative effect on the individual or the collective. This vision of the artist as creating an act of Tsim in which she or he finds the shattered pieces of the once perfect, whole, divine, and gathers and restores them, is offensive to the poetics of wrongness. I believe that there are universal feelings, qualities, experiences, but I do not believe that foregrounding our commonalities rather than our differences will lead to better poetry or will result in us treating each other less poorly. Writing out of the universal is often confused with writing for the everyman, which can too often be kind a kind of lowest common denominator poetics, in this way deeply underestimating the intelligence of everyman or a sort of total abstraction that renders everyone equally estranged from meaning. Notions that we are all created equal, that women can do anything men can do, that really we're all the same, and other liberal, well-intentioned fantasies have not kept us from killing each other. We see difference and we act on difference. Let us at least admit it and return to a particularity in a relational context, An I that is singular, but always reaching out to you and you and you. The I of Alice Notley, who the poetics of wrongness does worship. Here is the end of her long poem, The Prophet. Do not generally go about giving advice. That which is everybody's business is nobody's business. Let thyself become undeceived through the beauty and strangeness of the physical world. It is almost possible to believe that if you look at it, really see it, be it for yourself, you will be free. They say it will be cloudy tomorrow, but they are often wrong. There is a lot to say about two and one. Your life is not small or mean, it is beautiful and big, full of planets, clouds, sky, and also your tiniest things of you. One is you, and all this, and two, and yet, you must never stop making jokes. You are not great, you are life. Six, poetry is close to godliness. The poetics of wrongness is anthropocentric. It is written by human beings, for human beings, and about human beings. It is interested in the divine and nature as seen and experienced through the human senses and intellect. In its preference for the literal, for the direct, for the domestic, for the political, for the relational, for the sociological, for the individual, it can be perceived as atheist. This is not necessarily the case. The Poetics of Wrongness knows that ideology is a petri dish for wrongness. The Poetics of Wrongness is foundationally anti-fundamentalist, while recognizing, of course, that being anti-anything can easily develop into fundamentalism. The Poetics of Wrongness recognizes prayer as an ancient and enduring form of writing out of wrongness, both external and internal The Poetics of Wrongness loves the impossibility of monotheism, but only for its impossibility and for the ways in which it reveals the fragility and pathos and imagination and terror of humankind. The Poetics of Wrongness knows that whomever and whatever and however created the world, it wasn't by mine own hand, and I have only the power to name and love and suffer and die. If the poetics of wrongness believes in any god, it is the god of human failure, a god imagined to make visible in us all that is ungodly, that is, doubt, weakness, fear, ineptitude, physicality, and mortality. The poetics of wrongness is interested in getting close to God or beauty or perfection only in so far as the journey reveals the inherent and absolute failure of our inevitable reaching. As Whitman said, Why should I wish to see God better than this day? I see something of God each hour of the twenty four, and each moment then, in the faces of men and women, I see God, and in my own face in the glass, I find letters from God dropped in the street, and every one is signed by God's name. And I leave them where they are, for I know that wheresoever I go, others will punctually come for ever and ever. Or they will not. Perhaps we will finally destroy the world, in which case let us be thankful that we made poetry and had poetry while we still had eyes to read. It is by misunderstanding these poets and these ideas about poetry and feeling misunderstood by them that I have come to have the courage and energy to say anything at all. I've spent most of my life figuring out who I want to be by figuring out how to be unlike and like my mother. I watch my sons come into adulthood by wanting to do everything their own way, which arises out of an awareness of my wrongness, my insufficiency, which arises out of their awareness of who I am or who they think I am. My husband and I hurt each other as we struggle to see each other as separate, connected. Human babies are astonishingly dependent and remain so for an impossibly long period of time. It is remarkable how long it takes for infants to perceive that they are not one with the universe, not at one with the face that is hopefully staring back at them with love. Oppositionality is not an act of violence or hatred to the one opposed. Poetry, wrote Allen Ginsberg, is not an expression of the party line. It's that time of night, lying in bed, thinking what you really think, making the private world public. That's what the poet does. The poetics of wrongness agrees. Part of knowing what I think is knowing what I do not agree with, saying no. To the party line and making our private disagreements public? Yes, that's what the poet does. What if there were no more party line? I wrote (laughs) (laughs) Would poetry cease to exist, cease to be necessary? I say that such an age of agreement and sameness and rightness will never come to be. And that poetry will therefore always be necessary. I would love to be proven wrong. Um, so just a just a tiny little thing, which is, where are we now? I fear that we've entered an age of wrongness, unlike anything that has come before, or that white people, straight people, especially straight white people, especially straight white men, have suddenly come to realize how wrong and fucked up this country and daily life has always been for marginalized people and people from underrepresented groups. Either way, we are in trouble. And I think that even the people who are happy with the outcome of this election are in trouble. Uh, So... The first thing I would do to change this lecture is to add another anti-tenant. It would be seven. Poetry should be apolitical. Um, Poetry can and should and perhaps always is political. I don't know about that yet. I need to think that through. Um, But especially the Poetics of Wrongness believes that poetry has to be political. And I will say that I've seen so many poems uh, in the past few days shared on public, on social media more than I've ever seen, um, before. We have a new need for poetry and I would not choose this outcome for anything. I'm not saying that, but I do suspect that some very good art and especially some very good poems are about to be written. I don't think these poems are worth the lives and freedom, um, but the poems might help us find solace, and more important, perhaps they will be part of what will call us to action. Thank you.
0: That was Rachel Zucker giving her talk, The Poetics of Wrongness and Unapologia. Zucker's book, based on her BWLS lectures, The Poetics of Wrongness, is forthcoming from Wave Books and is available at www.wavepoetry.com, via bookshop.org, and at your local independent bookstore. The Bagley Wright Lecture Series is a nonprofit that supports contemporary poets as they explore in depth their own thinking on poetry and poetics, and give a series of lectures resulting from these investigations. Lectures are delivered publicly in partnership with institutions and organizations nationwide. To have episodes delivered directly to your device as soon as they're available, subscribe now. Visit us at our website, www.bagleywrightlectures.org for more information about Bagley Wright Lecturers as well as links to supplementary materials on each lecturer's archive page, including selected writings. This podcast was produced by me, Ellen Welker. Thank you to Seattle Arts and Lectures for partnering with us on this event and thank you for listening. Music is I Recall by Blue Dot Sessions from the Free Music Archive, CC by NC.